Hi, friends. Well, certainly a week ago as we gathered in worship, uh, we did not anticipate that things would be so drastically different uh, this week for us. And uh, last uh, Sunday, we were um, still gathered in one place. We still sang together. Uh, we were praying and we were wrestling and listening uh, to scripture. And uh, we were worshiping together as a community. And obviously, a lot has changed uh, since then. Uh, just uh, sort of by um, way of recognizing that those changes have uh, um, happened, uh, it's important to know that they haven't happened uh, sort of accidentally uh, or without a lot of uh, prayer, time, thought, effort. And uh, so let me just take the opportunity a moment to uh, um, acknowledge how grateful I am to the leadership group. First of all, that met on uh, Thursday evening uh, to think about the best way to love and lead this congregation uh, during this uh, critical time. Uh, and to the staff for their great work um, on Friday as they um, worked really hard to begin implementing some of the things that, uh, that we think are important. And then to consistent members and OASIS leaders uh, for their uh, good hard work in making uh, phone calls and making sure that everybody uh, has had the opportunity to uh, be contacted and to um, um, have a uh, individual conversation. So all of those things uh, have happened between um, uh, since last Sunday and now. And, uh, and still, uh, in spite of all of those things, we are still a worshiping community. Uh, and uh, we are still a people who are called to be people who worship. And so uh, this morning, our text out of Romans is going to do that. It's going to call us back to being a people of worship. And it's going to do that by giving this, us the sort of bedrock foundational truth that says we are securely in the hands of our powerful, good, wise God. And we belong to him. All of us belong to him. And uh, before I read our text in Romans for today, though, I do want to just notice with you um, something by way of the original hearers of the, the letter uh, of Paul to Rome. Uh, so when Paul originally wrote these words to those who were gathered in Rome, uh, he wasn't writing to people who were in big sanctuaries or gathered in large cathedrals, but he was writing to small groups of people who were, in some cases, huddled together secretly, quietly in small clusters, maybe in a back kitchen somewhere or out on a patio uh, or in slave quarters. Uh, but they're small groups of people who are coming together to listen to these words that Paul has written to the Christians in Rome. And Phoebe is one of Paul's colleagues in the ministry of the gospel. And she is the one who's responsible for bringing the, uh, the words of Paul written in, 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 the, in the pages of Romans to these uh, Christians huddled in small groups. And so she comes into your home, uh, she sits with you around the table, and she reads this letter from Paul to you. And so, um, and, and gives you the opportunity to, uh, to interact with it and to interact with her around it. So receiving the words of Paul in the Romans, as you are now in your home, whether you're with a small group of people or uh, by yourself or with your spouse or with family members, um, you're, you're right back into the DNA of how uh, Romans was originally heard. And so um, let's, with that heart and with that spirit and with those understandings, uh, hear the word of God. 
This is a text uh, from Romans chapter 11, uh, beginning at verse 33. Oh, what a wonderful God we have! How great are his riches and wisdom and knowledge! How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his methods! For who can know what the Lord is thinking? Who knows enough to be his counselor? Who could ever give God so much that he would have to pay it back? For everything comes from him and everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then these really familiar words right after that. And so... Romans 12, 1, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind that he will accept. And when you think of what he has done for you, is this too much to ask? And we'll ask God to bless this reading, his holy and inspired word. Amen. Uh, so today, uh, this is the last word, the last theme or portion of our overture section of this series on Romans. And uh, it brings us right into uh, the heart of one of Paul's chief driving concerns for the, for the book of Romans, and that is the idea of God's glory. Paul is always and ultimately concerned that God will be glorified. So in this text, uh, he brings us to this place of praise and worship that celebrates God's sovereign power. It brings us to a place where we acknowledge God's glory. Uh, one writer who is reflecting on this text and imagining uh, the small house church setting where Phoebe is gathered there in the back kitchen somewhere reading this letter, and she comes to these words and uh, she says, uh, and everything comes from him and everything exists by his power and is intended for his glory. To him be glory forever and ever and ever. Amen. And then this writer says, and then everybody else in the group would respond by saying, amen. And not just once does that happen, but it happens in chapter 125. And then it happens in uh, uh, chapter 9, verse 5, and in chapter 11, verse 36, and 15, 33, and 16, 24, more than any other time or place in Paul's writings. It's amen, and amen, and amen, over and over and over again. Amen is this word of prayer and praise and this confident trust, taking all that has been said, all that has just been written, all that we've just heard, and just turning it back to God in worship and in trust. And so, in a very real way, this letter of Romans not only uh, introduces us to thinking about worship and, and calling us to worship, but as we read through it, it actually produces worship in us. It actually brings us to a place where we're saying, amen and amen, and to God be the glory. This worship and this statement of giving glory to God comes at the end of 11 long chapters of grueling theological argument. And frankly, in those chapters, Paul is asking a lot of both the Jewish and Gentile readers of his words. Uh, he's asking them to stretch quite a bit in their thinking. And, and some of us are already having that experience of, of, of being stretched and uh, whenever someone talks about grace, the way that Paul is talking about grace, 
Uh, people are going to get nervous. Uh, people will be a little concerned. How far is this going to go? What are you really saying, Paul? And Paul anticipates that stretching. He anticipates those concerns. Uh, he says in chapter 6, um, either anticipating uh, an argument uh, that will come out of the words that he's saying, or he's responding to uh, pushback and criticism and concerns that he's already heard uh, from others during the course of his ministry. Uh, but he's saying, um, some of you might be wondering, does this mean that uh, with all of this grace talk, all of the Jews and all of the Gentiles, all in unity, and we all belong together, all of that, does that mean that we're soft on sin or that sin no longer matters as a category? Shall we, he says in uh, chapter six, shall we just sin all the more so that we can get more of all this grace that you're talking about? And Paul's emphatic answer to that, and my emphatic answer to that is no, by no means, no. Uh, don't, um, don't sin more um, uh, uh, so that grace may abound. Uh, don't dismiss because you're being stretched uh, to consider the bounds of, of grace. Doesn't mean that sin uh, is no more. Uh, and I think it's okay for us to be stretched. Uh, we should, listen, we shouldn't expect to come to a book like, we shouldn't expect to come to the scriptures written by a God whose wisdom and knowledge and riches are so far above ours. Uh, we shouldn't come uh, to any text expecting that it will just affirm and confirm what we already think and already believe and already uh, understand. And we just need to be affirmed in those things. So stretching a little bit is okay. Wrestling a little bit. We should come uh, and wonder and wrestle. Uh, we should wonder, what is salvation? Is it the Jewish thing? Is it the Gentile thing? Is it some combination? Is it, is it the new thing? What is, what is uh, salvation all about? Is it for this world? Is it for the next world? Is it now? When? How? And, and all of those questions should be stirred up. We should wonder about the bounds of grace and the lavishness of grace. Where does grace really take us. Uh, I had an elder this past week who wondered, what's the relationship between grace and repentance? Does grace lead to repentance or does repentance uh, um, uh, lead to grace? What is that relationship? We should wonder about, we should wrestle with these things. We should wonder how is this advice that Paul is giving in this theological argument about grace, how does that line up with advice that he gives in other places? Uh, uh, somebody asked me this past week, well, what about that church in Corinth, right? Um, Paul seemed to give some different advice there to the Corinthian church. And there's a man who's caught in, in sexual sin, and Paul says you should discipline him and not have him at your table and throw him out and, and, uh, in, in, in the hopes of expressing uh, grace to him uh, in that way and, and restoring him to fellowship. Um, and isn't that an expression? And we should, we should wrestle with um, what happens when Paul gives us uh, not only different, but maybe seemingly contradictory, or at least um, pieces, uh, different pieces of advice that don't live and sit well or easily next to each other. We should have those hard conversations with each other and with the text. And then when we do all of that, all of that arduous theological reflection, all of that work, then, then we come. And Paul says, what a wonderful God we have. Hallelujah. To God be the glory. Amen. And we come back at the end to a place of acknowledging 
God's sovereignty and God's power and God's greatness. And we just give him our worship. We come back to a place where we recognize that our lives are in God's hands and our thoughts are in God's hands and we belong to God. He is magnificent and he is in control even when we're feeling stretched and even uh, when we don't understand. Our lives are intended. Our theology is intended to give glory to God. God is in control. And uh, that can be a glib greeting card statement uh, if we aren't allowed to ask some really hard questions about that statement. God is in control. This, this doxology of praise and this moment of worship here is intended to remind us of God's power and control, but it raises questions as well. Uh, and two questions that we'll look at very quickly. The first question is, really? And the second question is, and how? So the question, really, is God really in control? I mean, do, you, do we really believe that in our bones, that God is in control? We can look around. We can look around if you went to Meyer today or if you've been around town or if you've been on social media. Uh, and it's easy to wonder, is God really in control? There seems to be a lot that isn't in control at all. Lots of uncertainty. There's lots to be afraid of. And uh, in this section in particular, even though it's a, it's a section of praise, uh, there's also, it's sort of a mashup of of verses and words that come from Psalms and even come from the book of Job, uh, where people of God have wrestled over the centuries and over the generations with that question, is God really in control? Job certainly wondered, what is happening here? How could God be good and powerful and in control if all of this disaster is happening? And I have so much loss and so much to be afraid of. All of that is here in this space. And that's important to recognize that question and that the aching longing um, behind those words. Uh, it isn't just a matter of skeptical doubt, but it's a matter of deep human suffering and fear. And part of what Paul is saying here is, yes, what I'm trying to say as I write to this church in Rome who has their own version of suffering is that in the life and in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus and in the gift of his Holy Spirit, God is demonstrating he, what he calls in the, in the first chapter his dikaiosune, his covenant faithfulness, his righteousness. The righteousness of God is being put forth into the world. In other words, God is, make, God is making the world right. He is acting with justice and righteousness. He is exerting his control and his sovereignty. He's putting things back together again. He's healing the broken. And he's doing it through the life and, the, and then ultimately through the end, through the people of Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the question, really? Is God in control? Jesus. Jesus is our Savior. Jesus has come. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is God's decisive and demonstrable and historical answer to, is he in control? And then the second question, and if God is, is in control, then how is he in control? What's the nature of God's control? 
uh, the church that Paul writes to here is a church that's in the heart of the Roman Empire. Um, the Roman Empire is a powerful and world-changing entity that crushes and dominates everything in its path. The Empire of Rome has declared itself to be the source of justice and righteousness in the world. And the Empire of Rome has said that it is due glory and that Rome is due our awe and our worship. And Paul, so, so Paul is writing almost a politically subversive letter. Um, uh, we don't want to over-politicize the Bible. We don't want to under-politicize it either. There's a, there's a political subversiveness here, and, God, and, and Paul is calling for God to be given glory instead of Rome, uh, for praising the kingdom of God and the sovereignty of God over that of Caesar. Uh, and so how does God's glory differ from the glory of Rome? Rome kills and conquers and defeats and enslaves, but God gives life and freedom and dignity and true justice. And so the question for Paul in this book is, uh, which version of power, which version of kingdom, which version of empire do you worship? Is it the empire that strong arms and puts down and defeats and criticizes and enslaves and confuses and controls? Or is it the empire that calls us to follow and to emulate the sacrificial love, the serving love of Jesus? So no, Paul is never soft on sin. He, he, he just thinks about sin more deeply than most of us do. He says sin, the real sin problem in the world, all of the inhuman, unjust manifestations, the heart-wrenching, fearful uh, manifestations of sin in our world are actually present because of a failure of worship. Uh, he says that explicitly in chapter 1 of Romans. He says uh, in chapter 1, uh, verse 23, instead of worshiping the glorious ever-living God, uh, they worshiped idols made to look like uh, people and birds and animals and snakes. In uh, that theme of worship, we'll go through uh, the book of Romans. It's a part of our overture for that reason. Um, uh, uh, the, uh, Paul envisions uh, almost uh, the, the, a Roman's road that diverges at this point. <clears throat> one option, uh, one road is... Uh, to worship Caesar, to give glory to his empire. And that road, he says, will take you down a road of idolatry, of false worship, of broken worship that leads to broken lives, uh, uh, to life of uh, destruction, interior destruction of your own soul and your own body and relationships and the world around you. And the other path, the path of worshiping the one true powerful God, uh, the sovereign God, uh, acknowledging and, and, and giving glory to God's empire and God's kingdom. Uh, that path will will lead to life, an abundant life, not only for you, but for the entire cosmos. And so the worship that we're talking about, just to be very clear, is not just liturgical. It isn't only, it includes, urgently includes, but isn't only about gathering in a big building and doing rituals and singing together and, and doing uh, the things that we do on Sunday mornings. But he says in, in uh, chapter 12, verse 1, this worship is a sacrifice of giving our bodies to God. Uh, the idea of giving our bodies to God is giving all of who we are to God. All of our time, all of our energy, all of our resources, all of our uh, uh, commitment, everything in us is given and directed to God and to producing a world that just is awash in, 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 in uh, God's glory. And so uh, the way that that kind of 
total encompassing giving myself to God worship gets expressed is going to vary considerably uh, um, from age to age and generation to generation and location to location. Uh, and uh, if you're gathered today in a group or if you have the opportunity to discuss uh, the question, it would be a great discussion point is what does it look like to give all of who we are uh, to God in worship so that God is being glorified and not some other empire or entity. Um, but given all of that variety, I want to come back uh, to our present moment uh, very specifically as we conclude. Uh, the way, um, um, uh, and this is a poem that one of my friends shared this week, and it connected deeply with me as an expression of giving our whole selves to God, uh, worshiping God, glorifying God, and doing so in ways that affirm the path that we walk in God's kingdom of sacrificial love. And so listen uh, to this invitation to give glory to God, to worship God with our whole self, and to do it in the way of Jesus' sacrifice and serving love. This poem is called Pandemic. What if you thought of it as the Jews consider the Sabbath, the most sacred of times? Cease from travel, cease from buying and selling, Give up just for now on trying to make the world different than it is. Sing, pray, touch only those to whom you commit your life. Center down. And when your body has become still, reach out with your heart. Know that we are connected in ways that are terrifying and beautiful. You could hardly deny that now. Know that our lives are in one another's hands. Surely that has become clear. Do not reach out with your hands. Reach out with your heart. Reach out with your words. Reach out all of the tendrils of compassion that move invisibly where we cannot touch. Promise this world your love, for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, so long as we all shall live. May God bless you richly as you glorify him in all of your ways. Amen.